You're listening to the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Mormon Expression is made possible through your generous support. Consider a subscription or a donation today. And thanks. It's time for the annual listener essay contest. Essays must be recorded in any audio format and be less than 10 minutes dealing with any topic in Mormonism. And the winner will receive a $100 prize. Essays may be submitted by sending a message to mail at mormonexpression.com. We look forward to hearing your entries and good luck. And finally, the Mormon Expression annual live event will be August 6, 2011 in Salt Lake City. It's going to be a fabulous evening filled with music and the spoken word. Get your tickets now by going to mormonexpression.com slash tickets on our website. We look forward to seeing everybody there. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And tonight uh, we've assembled another uh, great panel for your entertainment. Um, first of all, all the way from Arm, Arm, Utah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, Arm. Yeah. Is uh, Tom. Hey, Tom. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for letting me participate. Thanks for being here. And then we have uh, Heather. Hey, Heather, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back again. Have you hit your number five yet? Oh, I've lost track. Uh, perhaps. If not, no, I'm coming right up on, on top of it. Number five is the magic number at which time you can get a bio on the website. Um, if you've appeared and, and in if five. You, and if you hit six, we buy you donuts. <laughs> oh, easy there. I mean, let's not go cash in the bank in. <laughs> and then we have uh, uh, Michael Wagstaff. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Not to be confused with the other mic. Definitely not to be confused with the other mic. We love the other mic, but that, I'm not him. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome, welcome back. Thanks. Okay, so tonight um, we're starting up a series that uh, I've been sort of bouncing around for a long time, and I've, I've been really excited. Uh, you know, we try to cover all the. Well, let me say it this way: Mormonism is full of a lot of really bizarre strange bits and pieces that sometimes you can't necessarily cobble together into a single podcast. You know, they, they, it's 10 minutes worth of strange, right? So, and and I mean strange as in wonderful and great and all, just all those, all those superb things out there. So, um, what we talked about is having a top 10 series, and this is the first in that series, and that will give, give us a chance to count down the top 10 of something or the other in Mormonism. And we're planning on cranking one of these out a month so that you, our loyal listener, can learn about the top 10 whatever. Um, so tonight we're going to start the series and talk about the top 10 bad boys of the Quorum of the Twelve. The top 10 um, apostates or excommunicants um, from the Quorum of the Twelve. I, I think that most people don't realize that, you know, the Quorum has a, a history and probably what about 10% of anybody who's ever served in the Quorum of the Twelve since uh, 1835 when it was established have left the Quorum or been kicked out or, or otherwise gone their own way. And there's a lot of interesting stories there, and we're going to count them down, the top 10. 
Is this where we insert the David Letterman music? You know? <laughs> I, I suppose. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll do it in reverse order. I, I, there's a long history <laughs> of, a, of top 10 lists here, there, and around. So we, we should ride that uh, gravy train, right? <laughs> Why not? You, get, you got the music, right, John? The, the David Letterman music? Yeah, you got it right. I, I is there is there music? Don't they just play like a lot of like banging of drums and stuff? I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, any 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 questions from the panel before we 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 start off and on this big list? There's actually more than ten on here. I have to admit because you're going to find out right with number ten. Yeah, you combined a few to. Uh... But I guess we can just kind of highlight them, right? Because a lot of these guys. We could spend quite a bit of time talking about, but oh, good lord! Yes, we could. We could. I guess we'll just try to hit the highlights as much as we can. All right, um, let's let's jump right in at number ten. Tied for number ten are the Orsons, Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt. Of course, they are both. Um, I think they're both original from the original eighteen thirty-five uh, um, setting up of the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, both of them. Well, and you have to go back and realize that Joseph Smith in the early days used excommunication sort of like we would use a just a verbal warning today. Be like defriending on Facebook. Y- yeah. So Ooh, like, that is brutal. Everybody in the early days was disfellowshipped four or five times and excommunicated three or four times. So you can't go just off on being excommunicated because both these guys were in and out several times. But um, the, the they get the number 10 position. Um, because they both sort of quit the church around about the same time, which is 1842, and they both quit the church for the same reason, um, which is the um, other members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency had had their way with their wives. So um, Orson Hyde, of course, famously went on a mission to Palestine, um, and he was gone from April 1842 to December 18, or a- April 1841 to December 1842. Um, what the books don't tell you is as soon as he left... His wife, Nancy, moved in with uh, Willard Richards above the um, printing shop. Um, and uh, young Willard Richards, who I believe was unmarried at the time, he goes, um, shacked up with her for a while. And it was kind of an open, sort of dirty secret in Nauvoo. A lot of people saw the comings and goings. Um, one author I read said that they bolted the door, the doors and windows shut as soon as it has happened. But then Joseph got a little jealous and took her for his own, Nancy. And um, she stopped uh, living with uh, uh, Willard Richards, who, of course, was in the Twelve. And um, and um, she became one of um, Joseph Smith's pieces on the side. Hey. You know, shouldn't we, shouldn't we yeah. say that uh, the Lord commanded Joseph Smith to take her? Oh, that's his wife. That, and, that's that, and that she had a position of... Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. But she, ha- she was in a, a position of... Um, Never mind. I can't think of the term I want. That it was a good thing that like the Lord was blessing her. Oh like, yeah, to be one life. of Joseph Smith's wives. This was all yeah, place of, of honor. There this we was go. all the Lord's work. Of course. So that's Nancy, um, and of course um, Orson's wife Sarah um, also. And um, Sarah actually left the church years later. She went out to Utah but left the church. But um, Sarah also, while Orson or by while um, Orson Pratt was in a mission in um, England, I believe he was he was at, she started shacking up with um, Joseph. Now, the important thing is neither Orson Pratt nor Orson Hyde knew about this until they got back. And so it's not like there were other women, um, you know, like Zena um, Huntington, 
where Henry, Zena Huntington Jacobs, where Henry Jacobs was there and present, like when Joseph married her. Um, so, so there were times when Joseph would go, would approach, you know, like the, the Heber C. Kimball's a famous one where he said, you know, I want to marry your wife. And Heber said it was a big test. But in these cases, these guys didn't know. And they came back and they, uh, both, left the church and we're going to turn state's witness but lucky for joseph they both decided to repent so that's why they're so far down on the list they they did come back john did they have wives did they have wives i mean because i know orson pratt had i don't know 10 wives of himself um Um, pratt had before after the mission that was after the mission it it was after this was their introduction to the law of polygamy when they came back and found their wives had been you know, taken. Yeah, um, I, I think I think Hyde had eight eight additional wives, and he had thirty two children. Um, now Hyde, interestingly enough, would would have been senior, and he was senior. But Brigham Young, way back in Utah, shuffled them around and said, "Oh, you left the quorum," but it's really sort of a underhanded, and they put John Taylor in position. It was really sort of underhanded move because there were others who had lost their position in the quorum too. Is it was sort of Brigham Young. Uh, but yeah, he would have been number two instead of John Taylor. If or I mean the second prophet here in Utah, yeah, instead of John Taylor. So th- that's the Orsons. All right, let's move on to number nine. Um, the brothers. Now um, Quinn points out that there. I think there. When Jesus set up his quorum of the twelve apostles, he had two sets of brothers, and when Joseph set up his um, quorum of the twelve, he had two sets of brothers, and one of those sets of brothers was Luke and Lyman Johnson. They were, again, part of the original 12. Um, and both these guys became disillusioned with the Panic of 1837. Now, um, things were going good. It was, it was, it was a little religion, and, and there were converts, and everybody moves to Kirtland. And then they discover, like, real estate. <laughs> and uh, they set up the Kate Kirtland um, Society. Anti-Banking Anti-Banking Safety Banking. Society and really start... Um, they're accused of starting to run ride around in carriages. And if you remember, like as early as 1834, like Joseph and his family were just destitute and they settled down on the Johnson farm and all that sort of stuff. Um, by 1837, things were really bad. Joseph couldn't be seen in public and he was smuggled out of Kirtland in the winter of, um, of 38. So, um, both these guys became disillusioned with the prophet in 37, um, when the bank panic came all across the country and banks, collapsed um and they signed warren Parrish's statements and called the the prophet lie by revelation swindle by revelation cheat and defraud by revelation and run away by revelation was the uh, was the line from that um, statement that they both signed um uh let's see lyman actually came back to the church um and but his his he received a written threat on his life from Samson Avard, and Samson, of course, was the dark and sinister leader of the Danites. So Lyman um, kind of hung around, you know. And, and and let's be clear: a lot of people leave the church, but the church was sort of everything, and they they had their farms, they had their homes. So it's not like they just went away; not like they moved to Cincinnati or anything. So um, so Lyman was still threatened by the Danites. And that's what um, that's what made him turn and he he was further associated with the anti-mormons during the utah war or not the utah war the mormon wars in 38 um lyman was associated with them luke his brother was actually rebaptized in 46 and died in utah in in, in, in 61 so 
but um, Lyman stayed out. Now, I have in my notes that he became a lawyer in Iowa and that he drowned in an accident um, on the Mississippi River. Dan, I'd... Lyman? Really? I don't, no, I don't. I doubt it. <laughs> well, what I have down here is that Wilford Woodruff said that he did not go hang himself like Judas, but he did go drown himself, and the river went over his body while his spirit was cast <laughs> into the pit, where he ceased to have power to curse either God or his prophet in the in time or in eternity. You say Wilford Woodruff said that? Yes. That's a that's pretty rough. Then it must. You're be talking rough. about Lyman. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, Luke came back. Yeah, Lyman did not. Well, I. It, yeah, he eventually went to Iowa, and um, according to the Journal of Discourses, his life was never good or or happy again. <laughs> but I noticed that, you know, like Judas, he went and killed himself some 20 years after the event. So, of course, that's a fair, you know, correlation. Now, now I have to take exception with you saying Judas killed himself, because in the Journal of Discourse, um, Heber Kimball said that Judas was killed by Peter. I know so little. <laughs> <laughs> So all good Mormons know that Judas was killed by the other twelve. All right. Um, so I, I just called you not a good Mormon. I, I don't. Well, I'm not that. a good Mormon. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move forward. Number eight. The um, he's he's kind of a disappearing guy. John E. Page. He was baptized in 1833 and ordained apostle in 38. He was one of the replacements. So you know we lost half the quorum of the twelve after the panic, the the bank panic. And he came in, and he was a part of um, Joseph's inner circle. And but he was constantly being reprimanded. And he was actually supposed to go with Hyde um, to Palestine. Probably lucky he didn't, or his wife would have been passed around. <laughs> um, what Johnny Page? Oh, he oh, did you? Yeah, have he, he refused to, to go. He st- stayed with his wife in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, this isn't what, the guy. This isn't the guy that left his wife, and she was three days like just had a baby, and they were had three days of food or something. Where did I read that? I read that too, and now I can't remember who that was. Uh, I think that was the bat. I think that was I, okay. I think that was Lyman. Oh, no, no, let's keep going. I can't remember who it was. But <laughs> that was a nasty thing. He left his wife. Joseph asked him to go, and like three days later, or he only had food for three days, and and his wife was pregnant or something. I mean, it was like hello. Yeah, we we forget how real this was, and you know the word cult gets bandied around quite a bit. Um, you know, I I keep saying the church isn't a cult today, but it was really culty at the time, and you know people were waiting for Jesus to come, and you know they would leave their families and da 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 da. So how many times are you going to call the church culty or cultish? And until, tried to say, I'm not saying it's a cult until it sticks, Tom. Until okay. it sticks, <laughs> just checking. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and there, there's some that theorize, and I think it's a good theory, that if you read the history of the early members of the Quorum of the Twelve, there are those who would leave their families and those who wouldn't. And so what we did is we selected for sort of like bastards who didn't um, have strong connection to their wives. <laughs> so um, because, because a lot of them just said, no, I'm not going. Um, and I'm not going to leave my pregnant wife with no food. Um, and there are a lot of members who did that. But the ones who would obey and who are willing to like, give all that stuff away and hand their wives over to the prophets. And th- thus you get the, all the nonsense that happened in Utah in the fifties. Um, because I mean, these were like, I don't want to use the word psychopath, <laughs> but I know re- honestly, honestly, John, that, that when I went through these guys, that was <clears throat> the, the psychology of religion was something that I found myself weak and, and asking the question, why do these people do this stuff? Because normal people were selected out. They were weeded out. 
Yeah, but to what? I mean, okay, so you know, afterlife, uh, paradise type uh, glory is a reward, but I mean, you got to endure a lot of crap to hang with Joseph Smith. That's well, and and we know from other, you know, people have written about religion, other experiences, and it's sort of a Stockholm sort of thing. The more you give up, you sort of bond yourself to your 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 file leader, and and. You know, it's like the Millerites, you know, when Jesus didn't come in 44, some of them left, but some of them became stronger in their fervor. And, you know, because you give up so much for the religion, you sacrifice so much, they just can't get out. You'll, you'll meet people in any ward. I guarantee you, if you look, you can find 20 people who, if you got, like, down with a bottle of scotch, you could get them to, to admit that they don't believe in the church, but that it's just the cost of leaving is too high, and that and the cost for these guys was was tremendous, you know. Um, yeah, and I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You, no, go ahead. I was just going to mention if we were building off women, and you know when Mike was saying that uh, these this woman was uh, almost was three months pregnant or was it, pregnant. It was it was Lyman White, and his it says his wife being ill with a three-day-old child, and he was asked to go. Okay. Yeah. I When I when I tried to wrap my mind on how all that works and stuff like that, uh, I don't think they looked at women too too close to being equal. I mean, weren't a lot of them kind of oh, traded no. off like livestock? I mean, well, they, 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 they became that way in the Nauvoo period and up until, you know, like the end of polygamy. Yeah, um, women's rights suffered tremendously. Because I'm surprised at the times when I read about um, a father would uh, would kind of give the rights of his daughter away. I'm yes. like, wow. And they'd bargain with brothers and stuff for for women. And yeah, sure. It, I just well, don't think that women were looked very highly on back then. And they weren't allowed to own land in general society or vote. I mean, it wasn't like now. I mean, it would it would seem. It seems more um, extreme now because we're, you know, com- comparing women in normal society to, say, you know, fundamentalists down in Arizona. But back then, it, it wasn't that much stranger. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Mormonism has had its times, its moments. And it, it seems that things were better. You know, they, they were leaving the women back there. It, it's true. But things were okay up until Emma got uppity. And try to turn the Relief Society, you know, on to rooting out this polygamy and the spiritual wifery. And, of course, it was shut down for 20 years. You won't read that in any of the histories of the Relief Society. Um, Joseph Smith disbanded it. It was 20 years later before it was restarted. And women's rights at that point, um, because Joseph was in deep, were set back a long ways in Mormonism. <laughs> All right, so back to uh, <laughs> back to number... Eight, I page. think we're at. Page. So um, Page um, was loyal up until the martyrdom and actually was with the, the, the saints until they started leaving Nauvoo. And um, at um, in 46, um, he hooked up with the Strangites. He was uh, one of the Quorum of the Twelve, but he decided that Jesse or Jesse James. I can never remember if it's James Jesse. I think it's James. Yeah, James. James Strang. James Jesse Strang. Um, yeah. Um, he convinced Johnny Page to follow him, and uh, Brigham Young excommunicated him in '46. And he followed with um, Strang for quite a while until Strang started really wigging out. But later, he joined with the Hendrickites, which are the Temple lot. And then um, I think after that, um, he joined up with the the Reorgs. And so Page um, sort of was the the apostle that 
that went with the uh, the other movements. Yeah, we should we shouldn't discount Strang too much. That that dude really got a lot of uh, people to follow him, at least in the short time period that uh, he kind of swayed a lot of people. I mean, because he had scriptures and revelations and visions and and everything, and a lot of people went after Strang. Well, that's why Page is so important. I mean. I, I, I dare say that 95% of the people listening have never heard of him, and one of the reasons they've never heard of him is because he's been marginalized, because this is key. He was a sitting apostle, and he was a very early member, 33. He had survived through the panic of 37. He had survived through the expulsion in Missouri. He was in the inner circle in Nauvoo. You know, he was he was a, a, he was a big-time player, and um, he, he left and followed... It, it wasn't as clear cut as it seems today that Brigham Young should be the one to follow. And, um, there was a lot of confusion. And I mean, if you imagine today, if like, you know, Dallin Oaks followed after some guy in, in Ephraim who translates some, some, some records, it'd be something akin to that. Well, and, and you'd mentioned that, uh, he was he was kind of an insider, so he was a, a hidden polygamist and he was a member of the Council of 50. Yep. So yeah, he was he was definitely in on on the in. Okay, number seven is my personal favorite um, apostle from the early stages. Uh, William Smith, the um, younger brother of um, Joseph, he was a fiery guy, even more so than Joseph Smith. As a matter of fact, one time in a elders quorum meeting, like in the early days, he and Joseph got in a fist fight, yeah. um, and. Um, he was constantly getting involved in sex scandals all his life. The guy, the guy liked the ladies. Um, Your favorite guy, John. <laughs> well, he had a lot of sexual misconduct and people bringing charges up against him. And he was in and out. And most of the people didn't like him. Um, but Joseph would always like come to his rescue. And, um, and this is another thing that's sort of been buried. Joseph taught firmly in the patriot. Patrilineal, that the that the priesthood was given to some families by right, and that the Smiths had the priesthood by the right of their their lineage, and you know he put all the you know Hiram was going to be the next prophet, jo- um, William was called a prophet seer and lit- revelator. He talked about his father having his position as patriarch because of because of his right. There's pretty good evidence, although we don't want to go down the forged one, but there's pretty good evidence that um, Joseph Smith the third. Um, was in line to to receive the 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 prophetship if Joseph had survived. So so William Smith was this bad boy all, all the way along, and he was excommunicated pretty quickly in forty five. Now, when the sexual scandal broke, the first one, like in forty one, forty two, associated with John C. Bennett, um, in my things are really dark here. Like a lot of documents are missing, and there's a lot of accusations going back and forth. But wait, hang hang on a second. So was he was he in cahoots with John C. Bennett? Were they like what, he was wrapped up in that scandal? He was. And what appears to be happening is uh, that this is this is absolutely clear. John C. Bennett and William Smith would go to women, at least these two guys, and probably more, would go to women and say, "There's a secret doctrine of spiritual wifery which says that as long as we you know pledge to each other or whatever he would say to seduce them, then it's okay." And they were more like swingers than they were sort of the later polygamy that came on to to, to follow. In my in my in my ill informed opinion, Joseph Smith and some of the others were doing the same thing. And then they sort of became more concrete after they threw John C. Bennett under the under the bus as he started naming names. Um, but William was caught up 
and William confessed and, you know, said, oh, I'm sorry. But he, he kept that stuff up. And, of course, he was excommunicated in 45. And then in 48, he started a church as the guardian for Joseph Smith III. Um, this is a precursor to the reorganized church. But he sort of set himself up. And John or, or William was in and out of a lot of the, you know, he was associated with the Strangites and associated with the, the, um, the Reorganites. And, and Lucy really loved William. William was the, like, the only one left. And she was like William's fiery protector. Um, so he, he, he was there all along. And I know there were instances where he was, he had sent letters back and forth to Brigham. Because it was in the late 50s, I think, maybe you guys can correct me, that Brigham decided he wanted to collect the full set. So he sent his his guys after all these these old guys who had left the church, try to get them into Utah. And um, he never made a headway with William. Well, I don't know the validity of this, but I did find um, something that said that uh, he, when he started the church to kind of be an over or a protector waiting for Joseph Smith's son to be old enough to take over, that he actually claimed that that was the center of Mormonism, excommunicated Brigham Young, and uh, yeah. basically, you know, was trying to get people to come back to, to Illinois. Yeah, it's kind of like the Avalon papacy. They all excommunicated each other. Mm-hmm. He also fought in the Civil War. William did? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I guess you kind of had no choice, but... Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, go to number six. Number six, um, Amasa. How do you guys do? You guys know how to Amasa. Amasa is how you pronounce it. Now the Lymans, they're one of those power families you've never heard of. Three generations, um, Amasa and his son and his grandson all served in the Quorum of the Twelve, and two thirds of them were excommunicated. So uh, maybe the church has learned its lesson. All you Lymans out there, you're you're no longer in favor of the church. Um, uh, he, he was, he was an early, I, I'm not sure when he joined the church and write that down, but he was in Zion's camp and was in the 70 and 35. And, um, he was put in the quorum to replace Orson Hyde in 42, created sort of embarrassment when Orson Hyde came back. And there was a while there, there was 13 members of the quorum of the 12, cause they didn't really fire him, but they didn't really, um, they didn't really, uh, get rid of him either. Um, he, he stayed now we're starting to get away from those early problems in the church. And he stayed faithful. He went out to Utah and all that kind of stuff. But something happened in Dundee, Scotland in 1862. And he gave this speech in which he denied the necessity and the fact of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Is a language that comes up all the time. I think that was quoted from Wilfred Woodruff or something. Um, oh, it's B.H. Roberts who um, was quoting Wilfred Woodruff's journal who, who said that. So... To me, he he was the first real, well, Orson had some, but he was the first real heresy, the first real heretic. And if you think about Mormonism, uh, Mormonism has this um, this uneasy tension with the doctrine of grace um, that works are necessary. And in the early church especially, they, they really, it was more works, and that's why you get blood atonement and some of those early w- weird doctrines that came out. And I think, in my mind, Lyman just sort of took it to its natural conclusion and said, and said, um, I, I have the quote, quote here from, from a passage that he said, this is, this is, this is Lyman talking. We may talk of men being redeemed by the efficacy of Christ's blood, but the truth is that the blood has no efficacy to wash away our sins. That must depend on our own actions. 
So, so it's really that we have to work our way into heaven. We have to get these ordinances. We have to do all these things. We have to be obedient. We have to get plural wives. We have to do all this stuff. And that, that was Lyman's heresy. But if, yeah, and we, sorry, Heather. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it should be clear that, uh, that happened in 1862, right? When he was in, uh, Scotland. Yeah. And, and then nothing really happened until about five years later when he was brought up before the quorum and confronted about what he had said. But the key is, is it wasn't exactly a slip of the tongue, right? right. I mean, it wasn't exactly, he's, he just kind of got caught up and he's like, yeah, so the atonement's really not that big a deal. Uh, right. And because later, as I'm sure you'll probably mention, he, he talks about it again. Well, he apologized. Yeah, <laughs> he, he made did. some serious, serious effort to apologize to the quorum. I mean, and the prophet to say, hey, no, the, I, I realize my miss, you know, doings. I'm sorry. And, and then, then he, he did was, again. Yeah. Then he was talking about it again. Yeah. And then he, yeah. Yeah. The historians all sort of scratch their head about why, why it was five years. But there was some weird crap going over the pulpit at this time. Um, well, you know. I think information travels a little slower, too. I mean, if this was done in Scotland, I don't know, five years maybe. Well, but but Charles Rich and George Buchanan were out there with him. So so he had handlers, I, I guess. But I, I, I do think that the, the role of Jesus Christ was really in question in this phase in, in, the, in the doctrine. Because at this point, Brigham Young had separated the peep, the persons of Jesus Christ from Jehovah. You know, now, now, you know, after Jesus the Christ and Talmud sort of knitted them back together. But for Brigham Young, those were two separate guys. So you got like Elohim and you got Jehovah and you got Jesus and it's just this big cluster. And I, I think it came under the radar because it was just like one more strange log on the fire. I'm trying to figure out how it's a natural conclusion though, because how do you how do you recover from your sin if there's no atonement to cleanse you of your sin? Yeah, to work. Yeah, you had to work you, for it. So you, you do it like yourself. A, it's like a balance. Yeah, most of it falls on your own shoulders. So it's like a scale. You're trying to get more good than bad. I guess I didn't read his talk. I don't know if, if there's any. And wouldn't it, wouldn't it fall under a, you know the nowadays kind of slogan? Do you know the. Christ's atonement will cover you after you've done All everything you, can, you do. can physically possibly do. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why it's it's sort of a weird, you know, it's sort of like the mind body do list where people say everything is mind, everything is body. Although I, I like body. to think of it as a as as a checklist. And I used to argue this a lot, but if you do the checklist, then you're in. If you don't do the checklist, then you would it would be more of the grace standard. But in Mormonism, you have a checklist. Yeah. You have to get baptized. You have to, you know, I mean, you don't have to go on a mission, but you have to go to the temple, you know, and then you get married. And if you don't do this, then you're out. You're yeah, you're out. You're you're not you're not on the same level as everybody else. So do the checklist and what do you need Christ for then? Yeah. I thought it was also interesting that this guy, as far as I could tell, was one of the few that that got cut off or excommunicated for doctrinal reasons. Because there was quite a few, and you you'll even mention this, John, that uh kind of had their rogue ideas. And they still kind of stayed in. They, none of them really got excommunicated, but but messing with the atonement of Christ back then that was a that was a no no, I guess. Well, on the rogue idea is a fascinating study, and it goes beyond the scope of this podcast. Is is Orson Pratt because he was constantly in trouble for saying things that were unorthodox. But the irony yeah. of it is now the church has virtually adopted every single one of his positions, and you know he was he was. Um, 
you know, on the side of where the church ended up and against Brigham Young and his cronies, but all of Brigham Young stuff has been discarded. So, yep. so that's a, sort of an interesting um, sideline in the church history. Uh, okay, number five, um, Lyman White. Oh, yeah, this this is my favorite. <laughs> um, he was ordained an apostle in 41. Um, so this is, this, is, this is about the time right after, you know, there was a second expulsion from Missouri. And this is when they're, when they're coming into um, Nauvoo. And he was sort of a – there's a lot of guys that Joseph Smith started associating with at this time. You know, you have like Wild Bill Hickman. You have um, um, Porter. Um, I want to say Polygamy Porter. That's the drink. Porter Rockwell. Rockwell. Um, <laughs> Porter Rockwell, of course, was one of the original six. But, uh, you know, it's a point we come to time and time again. The church was, was on the frontier. And these were some some rough guys sometimes, um, and and if you read like encounters with the saints from more like educated people from the east, they always pointed that out that they were hard swearing, hard drinking, like wild frontier people. And you you watch the movies that BYU puts out for the church these days, and it's always like light They're organ genteel. music in the back, and they, yeah, they look like yeah, they look like something from a uh, like Pride and Prejudice or something or something like that. That's not the way I was. Um, uh, but Ly- Lyman White, he he was um, he was one of the twelve, and he claims that Joseph Smith gave him a special commission to go to Texas. Now you have to remember that we, we sort of back history up, and we sort of think that they were inevitably going to the Rockies, but they were investigating the Rockies. They were investigating California. They were investigating the Oregon Territory and Texas, and um, and Texas and the Rockies were both you know, going into Mexican territory. So it was sort of, we're done with the U.S. government. They're not giving us any protection. We need we need to go out. And um, they started negotiation with, um, oh, and he was, he was at the Alamo. Do you guys remember who it was? Uh, anyway, they started um, negotiation with uh, whoever is the leader of Texas to look for a place to move the entire Mormon settlement. And, um, and um, Lyman White was in charge of this, a member of the 12. So after... The, the martyrdom, um, that, you know, Joseph gave him and said, I want you to go down. I want you to take some people. I want you to settle Texas. Um, now, hey, to interject, is that, isn't there documentation of that? Or is it just hearsay that Joseph Smith told, told Lyman to, let's go to, the goal is to eventually settle Texas? That I'm not sure of, but I do know that Brigham Young took, gave it enough credence that he let him go with George Miller, who was one of the early bishops, and they took right. the Pine Company. Now, the Pine Company was a, a group of Mormons who had been up in Wisconsin to cut wood and float it down the river, both for economic reasons and, and to give them um, building materials. Um, so that gave that gave Lyman White his sort of foundation settlement, and they all went down to Texas. Um, we have a lot of, like, you know, and they were somewhere outside of Austin, and they kind of moved around, but Lyman White was a hard drinker, and he walked around with a pistol on his side, and he was just a, a regular, like right straight out of the movies, frontier cowboy. Um, and in 1948, th- there were a lot of communications went back and forth. Brigham Young was trying to get White and his followers to go up to Salt Lake, and White always said, I'm here by revelation. This is where Joseph told me to go. This is where I'm supposed to be. And in 1948, he published a pamphlet questioning Brigham Young's right to lead the saints. Called him a pretender to the crown. Yes. <laughs> and Brigham Young promptly excommunicated him. Um, White became a follower of William Smith, but then he set himself up 
um, and eventually got his own 12 apostles down in Texas, and they even set up their own version of the endowment, which is sort of interesting because the other restoration movements never really did that. Um, but then I, Lyman White, it sort of fizzled out and eventually died off. Yeah, he started a temple in Zodiac, Texas, and um, they moved because of economic hardship to a place called Mormon Mill, spelled Mormon spelled with an A. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he died, everybody kind of dispersed. It didn't keep going. Yeah. And the sad part is, is there's really no marker for his uh, burial anymore. Yeah. What was up with? Uh, I didn't. I didn't find. I just. I saw a blurb about his being accused of teaching false doctrine, and and then he was tried before the High Council in Far West, and and found guilty. And I. I, I, I didn't get a grasp on actually what that was and wondered if anybody saw, heard or read anything about that more. I skipped over those. If you took the, all the guys, all the 14 guys on our list, that probably happened a grand total of 70 times. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really common occurrence. And, and in their defense, there, if you read the Doctrine and Covenants in Book of Mormon, it's not real doctrine rich. Um, and so the guys were just sort of making it up as they went along. And if two of them contradicted each other, they bring up one for trial and, so. Well, in a in a in a legal setting, you you have you you actually have a law that you're prosecuting on that law. What and you're like you're saying the doctrine was weak. What are the, I mean, that must have been a kangaroo court. To, I mean, you know what I mean. I I just couldn't get a grasp on what actually happened at those trials at being tried before the high council. And, and you have to also recall that they were really into public shaming. Um, if if somebody did something like they upset Joseph Smith, they'd have to get up and confess their sins. And if, if if they thought or caught somebody committing adultery, they would talk about it openly. That it, you know, if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it says you know you should confess your sins for the congregation. They really believed that at the time, so everything was sort of way out in the open. All right, number four, the one and only Thomas B. Marsh. Yeah, so he left over some uh, some milk scraps, and that's it. So let so what's number three? <laughs> So, of course, um, the milk scrap story keeps coming up, which um, was apparently invented by George A. Smith, George Albert Smith, who um, gave that story over the pulpit years later. There is no evidence whatsoever historically for it. And, and unfortunate for George A. Smith, Marsh actually wrote a signed affidavit where he explains exactly why he left the church on October 21st, 1838. And he left the church because he was alarmed that Mormons had formed mobs, were expelling all the non-Mormons from Davies County, were stealing property and burning homes. Now, we talk about the Mormon War. Once again, this is church propaganda. It talks about all that stuff going one way. And I am not here to dismiss the Missourians. They were a rough lot. But so were the Mormons. And they were both raping and Wrong. pillaging yeah. through the countryside. Yeah. They were burning and killing, and uh, not as much killing as you'd think. But th- Hang th- on, now that's that's a pretty big, big accusation. You're saying that the Mormons were raping Okay, and I don't have any evidence. I meant, I meant raping just, the countryside. Just plunder, not, pillage. Plunder and pillage, that's what I meant. But <laughs> march to a town called Soften Glanton. up your words already. But they, the, sorry. Go, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say they marched to a town called Gallatin, raided homes and stores, burned everything down, dispersed the people, just like the church claims happened to the Mormons constantly. And it did happen to the Mormons constantly, but this was a two-way war going on Mm -hmm. here. And the Bishop's Storehouse, we have many, many accounts, was full of stolen goods. 
saddles and, and, and animals, and they would go in, they'd bust in, they'd steal everything they could, and they would take it and run. And so would the Missourians. It was going back and forth that way. The Mormon War was really nasty. And so a lot of people left the church over that because they said, um, you know, the Danites were doing their raids under um, Samson Avard, and they were, they were playing dirty. Too. So it's not like these these praying saints. You know, you always see the pictures of Hans Mill, and Hans Mill was a terrible tragedy. Don't get me wrong, but there were also Mormons out there raiding and burning, and that's why Marsh left the church. Um, now, Marsh, unfortunately, I, I talked about sort of the cult aspect, and you know, if you had everything invested in the church and the church owned all the property and, you know, you left the church, you would lose your farm and sometimes your family and just everything you had. Um, in 1857, he made his way back to the saints. He was impoverished. He was destitute. Um, and Brigham Young took him back in. And this is Brigham Young's words from the pulpit. I think they're great. So I want to read them. Um, so Brigham Young, he has told you that he is an old man. Do you think that I am an old man? I could prove to this congregation that I am young, for I could find more girls who would choose me for a husband than can any of the young men. Brother oh, Thomas yeah. considers himself very aged and infirmed, and you can see that he is, brothers and sisters. What is the cause of it? He left the gospel of salvation. What do you think the difference is between his age and mine? One year and seven months to a day, and he is one year, seven months, and 14 days older than Brother Heber C. Kimball. Mormonism keeps men and women young and handsome, and when they are full of the Spirit of God... There are none of them, but what, what will have a glow upon their countenances. And that is what makes you and me young, for the Spirit of God is with us and within us. You know what how I... Is it, how is it that right after that, he didn't get a bunch of high fives and chef's bumps? Wait, wait, there's one more <laughs> sentence I have to read. When Brother Thomas thought of returning to the church, the plurality of wives troubled him a great deal. Look at him. Do you think it, to, do you, do you think it need to? I do not, for I doubt whether he could get one wife. Um, Check out that loser. As you were public humiliation. All I could think is, why don't they tell that part in the Beehive House tour? That 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 speech. Why don't they? Polygamy keeps you young and spry, and the the young women are all salivating over the Brigham Young. Ah, yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Hey, but I want (laughs) moving away from that for a second. There, there's a there's a little sentence in the on. Thomas B. Marsh in the Wikipedia page, and I, I was wondering if you could clarify. It says, after Marsh moved to Utah and rejoined the Latter-day Saints, he looked back at his decision to leave the church with regret, recanting his 1838 affidavit. I mean, is that true? As far as I know. Yep, as far as I so know. So he's, so this affidavit that uh, he wrote, he he later denies. Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, it, right. and also he died a pauper in Ogden a few Ogden. years later. Um, Tom, I think you you gotta you gotta emphasize that. That's that's not that's. I mean, there, there's a bigger picture there because um, I, am, I, am I wrong? All these guys return to the church. Not all. Not of them, all of them. Uh, a, a huge percentage. I mean, I in th- some I shape th- or form. Yeah, I think I mean, I they think- may not have come back. Sorry, they may not have come back to the LDS or the, the but maybe to the RLDS. This was their glory, their glory days, and he was he was without family. He was he had nothing. And I, I told you that Brigham Young sort of sent out the word through the through the missionaries that hey, we're bringing people back, come back, because this is when Brigham Young was still worried at this time in fifty seven that that when Joseph Smith the third sort of ascended to to power that he would question. And you have to remember that in the early years, Brigham Young said that he wasn't the 
the president of the church that he was only sort of holding that position. He was only the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Right. And so it was. It wasn't clear, even for a lot of years, that Brigham Young was the de facto leader. We're, we're back reading that into history. So Brigham Young, in my mind, believed the more of these guys he could gather up, and if, if they if they don't have anything to their name, and he says, "Yeah, we'll take care of you." You know, you just got to. I mean, here here, public Brigham Young was publicly humiliating him. So he's obviously not a man who's who is in good position at that time. Um, so, but but the the things that were in the affidavit. Are, are well established through many historical sources. It's not like we just have that affidavit. The, we know the Mormons were raiding. I mean, that, there, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, so, if well, when you say the Mormons, I mean, not, not to throw the entire umbrella over Mormons in general sense. I mean, there were a, a division of the Mormons that were doing that. Sure. Well, when the Mormons had a leadership, and the leadership was aware of it and was ordering the raids. So, well, and it's not like the church membership was however many million they claim it is now. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, so they're constantly lying from beginning to end. Okay. Well, that's not okay, Tom. You're not guilty of the raids. I, I absolve you. <laughs> John has spoken. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm, obviously there's going to be people who are unaware of them, but I think to. You know, one of the ploys that historians and apologists have used is to try to say, oh, this was just a little minor thing in the dark. But when these guys are rolling in, carrying all this loot, it's, it's, when it's in the bishop's storehouse where everybody's going to get their, you know, their cheese or whatever, it's not like you can hide it. Yeah. But, it, but if, if there was just a small percentage of the church leadership that knew what was going on and they just kind of, I don't want to, tell anybody what's going on instead of the entire leadership and they all looked at each other like yeah let's let's not only encourage this kind of behavior but let's stand behind them let's help them when we can and that's i don't think, I think that's any two good, different things i don't think there's any good evidence that the leadership was unaware or anybody in the leadership was unaware also i think well i think that we ought to keep in mind what the time what, what it was like back then they thought christ was coming back in their lifetimes they thought that they were in the last days you know yeah. what I mean? And I mean, you've, the the opening story in the Book of Mormon is uh, Nephi cutting off the head of Laban. You know what I mean? To It's better that one man perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. So if they're living in that kind of uh, very palpable environment, then the they would view what was going on in that in that time in a in a completely different way than we do. You know what I mean? Those are the those are the minions of the devil or whatever and we and we're trying to fight this war until christ comes and you know i mean it's completely a so, mindset so it's uh so lying for the lord was kind of looked at in a favorable light you think oh absolutely it was probably considered okay. necessary except for marsh well his neighbor stole his milk striplings or whatever <laughs> well essentially when i read him I, I i i saw him leaving on a social issue well, yeah, if you count like burning down exactly. your neighbor's house is a social issue. <laughs> well, didn't he didn't he also leave over the salt sermon? Well, the, the salt sermon is what sort of was the tinder box that tit, mm -hmm. the, the, sent the whole thing. Well, I mean, basically what what we've basically described is Thomas B. Marsh was offended. That's why he left the church. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to sin. Okay. Yeah. Um but right. it came back, so it's all true. Interestingly enough, that milk stripping story is still being told as of most recently. Bednar told it at conference in 2006. Yeah, it's a good story. 
Yeah. Well, and the, you know, the, uh, let's talk a little bit about that story. The reason it's so it's so juicy is because it's the it's the wily woman. It's he's following a woman to his own. It's like the, Samson the sto- and Delilah. The story has him. Yes, exactly. The story has him like this. He's head of the quorum. He's de- destined to be the prophet, and he's righteous. And it's his, it's his gossipy, backstabbing, stealing wife. And it, it fits that Mormon narrative of the of the you know the Book of Mormon, the Bible. Women are 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 harlots and thieves. You know. Oh yeah, th- this is a lifetime movie just waiting to be written. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Women are temptress. Okay. Yeah, I mean, anybody out there, name one positive character who's a female from the Book of Mormon. Uh, The mother of... Zariah? No, all she does is bitch and moan the whole time. That's true. What about the the mothers of the stripling warriors, dude? And and what about... Did Nephi's wife complain? <laughs> I thought Nephi was a homosexual. Wait, are we? Whoa, oh. wait, where did that come from? <laughs> no, I, I, you notice you notice that the only positive characters you can name, you guys can uh, throw at me, have no names. They're not named well, characters. Well, yeah, ones that weren't mentioned or yeah, sir, not appearing in this note. film. Because well, right. they were traded like livestock back then too. I All can't right. think of any. Uh, number three, William McClellan. Um, ah, this this one's my favorite. Really. Now, yeah. the favorite part about William McClellan for me is um, he had this set of journals that everybody thought was lost. And that when Hoffman was blowing people up in Salt Lake City, he was in negotiations with the church. The church was trying to buy them off of Hoffman. This is where things were falling apart. And the whole time they were in the church's damn they fault. They had him, yeah. <laughs> they, didn't even know that, they didn't even know they had him. Um, no. um, McClellan is, a, is an interesting cat and and – it would take a long time to to take him apart. He was probably the smartest guy in the quorum, probably the most educated. Um, and he had challenged Joseph Smith on some obvious things. Like at some point, he had challenged Joseph Smith, saying, uh, "I don't think your revelations are really. I think you might be making those up." And and Joseph challenged him back to write his own, and then he came back and said he couldn't do it. He um, he seemed to me as one of the few guys that totally got under Joseph Smith's skin. He did it multiple and, and times. And Joseph Joseph Smith was like, <laughs> I mean, there's there's documentation where Joseph Smith uh, started insulting him, likened him to an ass in the Bible, yeah. the talking ass in the Bible. <laughs> but uh, one thing that's interesting is we have his journals now; they have been published, and they're a fascinating read. Um, and he was really sort of instrumental in the early growth of the church. He he joined back in thirty one, and he was a he was a big player all, all the way along. Now he said some things that I like. Like he went through the Kirtland Temple, and he became very disappointed. That was sort of the first part of his disappointment, because he said that Joseph had promised that they'd get knowledge when they went through the endowment. He said, "I didn't learn anything." <laughs> so so he's the first one to say that. Um, and he was uh, just brutally honest. He, I mean, he was, he was just. <laughs> um, so he tried to get back in in '37, and he he like kept hanging around. He was in Missouri, and um, the reason he gets the ranking of number three um, is he was sort of an agitator when the the '37 collapse happened and all that stuff. Um, and and you have to. Remember, I wrote down this 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 tidbit that I read. Fifteen percent of all the membership and one third of all the general authorities left in thirty seven. So it, it was a huge blow. But he he was twenty miles outside of Far West, and he became confederate with the mobs. And he was probably the guy who went and fingered all the uh, leaders of the church and said, "That's him. That's him. That's him. That's him." 
And the the there's accounts in the journals of like um I think of um Rigdon talks about it and Cowdery talks about it that when they were like caged when they first got captured after the the um the Mormon War that McClellan was there in camp um sporting around and saying some nasty things. So McClellan gets the position of number three because really he was sort of one of the principles in turning against the, the Mormons and turning them over to the Missouri uh, mobs. Yeah, and, and he he also got sucked in with Strang, and then he went to Hendrick, so he was a Hendrickite for a while. And, yeah. And he gave tours of the temple lot until he was really old. Yeah, yeah, he, he bounced around for a long time. Once again, everyone should go read his journal. Fascinating. What are, I, what are those journals? I haven't read those, John. It's just the journal of... William McClellan. Yeah. Yeah. William buy him a desert book. He used to be able to. One thing that I thought was a little interesting as I was going through some, some of my research on this, I was thinking, I wonder if uh, some of the temple work has been done for some of these apostates like recently. And McClellan is one of them that has had his temple work redone in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. If, so, you, if you look in the back of um, – uh, D. Michael Quinn's books, Origins of Power and Extension of Power, he's got little bios of all these guys, and he has included in there when they did their temple work. Um, some of them it was really quick, some of them it was uh, they let them soak for a while. So yeah, these these are all apostates back in the day, but they're all they're all good now. Yeah, they're all good now. Alright, number two. Let's get into the, the, the big two, the final. Richard R. Lyman happens to have the distinction of being the last guy excommunicated from the Quorum of the Twelve. He's excommunicated in 1943. Richard was the grandson of um, Amasa. Is that how we decided we say it? Amasa? Mm-hmm. Amasa. And I, I, I forgot to write down the one in between. There, there was one in between who wasn't, who was also in the Twelve, who wasn't um, excommunicated. I um, just named him Lyman Lyman. Richard, <laughs> Richard Johnson. Richard was ordained in 1918 at the age of 48. Um, and he married Anna Jacobs in 1925. Now, as his second wife. Um, now, when we say married, he wasn't married by anybody, apparently. So, really, Anna was his mistress. Well, they and, supposedly did some sort of ceremony yeah, in secret. Yeah, yeah. Kind it of was, like Cold Mountain or something like that. Well, I, you know, I was thinking of uh, Braveheart. That's what. So, so he kept Anna, Anna as a kept woman for 27 years. They separated in not until 1952, which was nine years after he was excommunicated. Um, and then after that, they rebaptized him in 54, and he died in 63. Um, so, you know, th- this this he's number two because. This is not very well known, and this is a hugely embarrassing thing for the um, church. There are a lot of people today who are alive, who were alive when there was a practicing polygamist in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And you start thinking through that, so he's got a mistress for all those years. What about all the stuff he did? Does that all count? If that all counts, what what does that say about apostasy? Is apostasy even possible? If everybody he ordains and all the temples he dedicates and all that kind of stuff, it's valid, even though he's he's sporting a uh, mistress. Well, God yeah, sorts that it's out. It's a John. huge problem for the church, anyway. I mean, yeah. even down to the micro level of if a man is drinking and baptizes his son, does his son actually baptized? Right. Yeah. This is one. This is one of those things where you know that a general authority 
was brought these situations and he went to pray about it and he just left the room with a headache. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I mean the church the church will make you keep baptizing. Um I there's there's baptisms I've heard about where there's kids who are like you know, like um I don't know, they're not all they're handicapped. They're handicapped. And they keep popping their toe out, and they'll keep dunking them in and dunking them in and dunking them in because, damn it, if that toe comes up. But this guy's banging Anna for 27 years, and everything's okay. I mean, the church. Well, he was married, <sighs> right? No, he's not married. He's not married by Mormon standards. He's not married by um, well, I mean, standards. If, if he if he said I do, she said I do. Whether there was people there or not, they're married. Whatever. John, that's big love standards. Hey, wh- did anybody find any Tribune articles or any anything? I mean, because this is recent. This is. Um, I found some stuff, but I didn't have time to go digging and like, what do they call that? Do my due diligence and double check it. Um, well, 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 John said, you know, there are people. I mean, my dad was alive when this guy was, you know, doing his thing, and so what was the what was the the publicity of it? I mean, it it was be- all hush hush. It was really undercovers, and well. From what I found, Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold B. Lee were following him around, digging up information on him, and they had the chief of police arrest him, wearing his woolly garments and his uncombed hair in bed with the mistress. So, I mean, wow. I think it was probably big news here in Salt Lake City, but... I, I, think it was, I think it was squashed. It's been a while since I've really looked into the details of this, but... Well, it's very possible. It was probably, you know, the chief of police was probably Mormon. But a chief of police I'm at the time sure. might have been Skousen. <laughs> True. Um, I have to look that up. Uh, but yeah, you know, Cleon Skousen was the chief of police of Salt Lake for a lot of years. Yeah. And I found one more thing that David O. McKay helped him come back to the, come back to the church and be rebaptized, mm-hmm. and that he was never restored to apostleship or even given the Melchizedek priesthood, and that he passed the sacrament with the deacons. And that just kind of broke my heart for the poor guy. Like how humiliating. Well, they got to humiliate him because they they did the same. Well, he. Went along with it, but I mean, the, he. I mean, let's. I don't even mean to belabor the point, but that never stopped me before. This is a huge problem for the church. Yeah. I mean, any way, any way you go, like like Tom says, this is a headache any way around it. Um, because how do they not know? These guys are supposed to have discernment, right? How does he Boy. get away with it? How do people like not say, you know, that that Richard Lyman came at our conference? And normally, I feel the spirit when people. I felt nothing when he was talking. I felt nothing. That guy doesn't have the. Yeah, it just it just shows that the whole system is a system. Uh, or they or they just say, you know, I I don't know, God works in mysterious ways. I'm I'm not sure. You know, Tom, I thought I was a little more uh still on the bandwagon than you, but I don't think that's the case. Just in what this you podcast, you you've you've already swayed to the dark side. Has <laughs> yeah. John Larson convinced you, Heather? No, uh. I think I think I was down in the pits of hell before I joined the podcast. But like, <laughs> Heather, I just what do, you, what do you mean bandwagon? What, what do you <laughs> like? I I thought I still want to go to church, and I don't have any social pressure to go to church. I just want to go, and I still see positive things in the church. But every step along the way, it's not me, you know, jumping up and trying to defend the church. It's Tom. So I'm feeling well, a little. Tom, Tom feels a duty. Yeah. Do I feel a duty, or do I just see the error in your all ways? <laughs> Something. <laughs> you're a good man, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Heather. If you're not feeling any social pressure, uh, would you mind coming back to church sooner? <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> there, Tom. There's your social pressure for you. All right. Okay. Let's go to the number one. 
Uh, my all, favorite. All, all of you out there, my favorite too. There's, there's piles and piles of fun stuff going on here. The one and only John W. Taylor, um, son of of his father, who was put in the quorum of um, at the age of 26 in 1884. <laughs> um, and um, he married Janet um, Woolley. Now, we talked about the Lyman's being an important family. The the most important Mormon family you've never heard of are the Woolies, um, um, and which was after the manifesto. And Eliza Roxy Wellington in 1901, and Rhonda Welling or Welling, not um, Rhonda Welling in 1901, married at the same time. I think they're sisters. And then Elna G. Sandberg, he married in 1909, all while being a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He was a really popular guy. Um, and this is hard to under, underestimate. He was one of those conference talker, talkers everybody liked. And he is reported to have seen Jesus Christ, Wilfred Woodruff, Brigham Young, and his father, John Taylor, in the flesh, or as resurrected beings. Do you, I can't remember the, if you shake the hand of a resurrected being. What? You'll feel it. If it's a messenger from God, he'll just stand and continue delivering his message. Oh, okay, okay, thank if you. it's from the devil, he'll try to shake your hand and you'll feel nothing. Um, Taylor declined to sustain the first manifesto and conference. We were talking about that a few uh, months ago on the podcast that a lot of the guys just sat there and glowered when they read it in conference and he refused to sustain it. Well, he had a lot to lose. <laughs> yeah. And, um, there he, were, he didn't have to stop. The manifesto didn't make him stop. It just made it no forbidden in stuff. the future. And there were two, there were two that were kind of, these guys were the most, um, sort of, over the top with post there was a lot of post manifesto polygamy but it was John Taylor and um, Matthias Cowley Matthias Cowley who were the two that were sort of put put out to hang now Taylor had been because Congress knew now now let's go to the Smoot hearings 1904 Congress knows that the church was wink wink nod nod about polygamy and so and so um, Smoot was um, was it Reed Smoot yeah, Reed Smoot yeah. was was a was a member of the twelve, and he was elected to be the senator for the state of Utah. And there was a, there were hearings that were um, that were that were pulled up by Congress um, to try to stop that. And they started subpoenaing all sorts of people. Fascinating. There's a great book that came out like last year. Has huge segments from it. It's when Joseph F. Smith basically says that he doesn't get any revelation, but. Taylor, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. But ta- yeah. Taylor, um, John W. Taylor was was that the brethren had pushed him up to Canada, and he started getting louder and louder. And he said, "You guys come clean, or I am going to Congress to and tell them the truth of what's really going on." And he had made enemies in the twelve: Francis Lyman, Heber J. Grant, Joseph F. Smith, and Reed Smoot. Rawl hated hated him. Right, and this is the beginning of that schism. That was started with John Taylor because John Taylor had the the revelation saying you know the, the he had a couple revelations um, you know some are in possession of the church some of them are probably in possession of the church but you know saying the church won't lose polygamy that if they if and then the the big schism came when you know the all reds and the woolies and all those guys got the revelation saying the church is going to go away from polygamy but you have to keep it you know here I'm ordaining you guys and that's the beginning of all this polygamous stuff we're still doing. Well, and John W. Taylor claimed that he saw a bright light coming out from underneath the door of his father's bedroom the the night, yeah, when he was getting these revelations. I think that happened in Farmington. Yeah, yeah, in the underground. 
Um, now Taylor resigned in in 1905. He and um, Matthias were disfellowshipped or reprimanded. I can't remember around about 1905 in response to the Reed Smoot hearings. Now you should make sure that. He resigned from the quorum, not from the church, Yes, right? he resigned from the quorum. Yeah. He said, okay, if we're not going to do, do that. And Matthias sort of stayed with the church, and but Taylor was excommunicated in 1911. Now, there are a lot of mixed accounts here. There are some people who say that Taylor became very bitter against the church and sort of sided with the, um, with the, the polygamy underground and the fundamentalists. Um, there are other accounts that say he was secretly rebaptized in 1916. Either way, he died in 1917. Well, from what I found, the the now fundamentalists were trying to coalesce around John W. Taylor, right? And he wouldn't he wouldn't stand up against the church like he was still like he wasn't bad mouthing the church. He wasn't, you know. Yeah, he's he supposedly still believed in the authenticity of the church. Yeah, right. And I found that in 1916, two stake presidents tried to posthumously baptize him and do his temple work, but the church claimed that that was null and void. But then in 19, that? yeah, in 1917, I, the first presidency issued a statement saying that he was not baptized. But um, Quinn, but at least, go ahead. Uh, he, he says that he affirms that he was. He was secretly baptized under the knowledge of the church in 1916. Well, this I found it said May twenty first, nineteen sixty five. He received his ordinances from the restoration well, and the I restoration of uh, blessings. Uh, and I'm sure he's had it about seven thousand times <laughs> since then. But oh, so, every but that, little that dig you can get, right, John? <laughs> That's more Lyman problems. And I mean, <laughs> why do they get to declare it null and void? Um, because they're the first presidency. <laughs> they're receiving the revelation. Yeah, that's just. That's, that's just why, what, that's Mike. Why I'm, that's why I'm not there because I can't <laughs> buy stuff like that. That's too. That's too fantastic for me. Well, you know, according to the way the church works, you're supposed to be able to pray on it, and if you ask with a, you know, uh, an honest heart, really wanting to know, the Spirit will uh, reveal the truthfulness of it to you. Thanks, so Heather. fast and pray. I'll work on that. <laughs> hey, you, you've made a complete turnaround in just a few minutes, there, Heather. Congratulations. Oh, I'm trying. Except for I didn't really mean it. <laughs> oh. Now, I, I am looking up right now in Church History in the Fullness of Times. Who's that written by? This is this is the Re- Religion 341 Manual written by the Church. Ooh. Um, the Aftermath of the Smoot Hearings. I'm skipping down a paragraph. Unfortunately, two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley, were not in harmony with their fellow leaders regarding the scope and meaning of the original manifesto, nor were they able to agree with the second pronouncement issued by President Smith. At the commencement of the Smoot hearings, Taylor and Cowley went into seclusion to avoid testifying in Washington, D.C. Following the Smoot hearings, these two apostles submitted their resignations from the Quorum of the Twelve, it was widely known they had performed more than a few plural marriages after the manifesto was issued. Their resignations from the Twelve did much to symbolize the plural marriage had indeed ended. Six years later, John W. Taylor was excommunicated from the church because he had married another plural wife after his resignation. Elder Cowley, although never reinstated as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, remained faithful in the church. Just wanted to hear you to hear what the spin the spin doctors say. What the correlated history of the church says. Yeah, that didn't sound too bad. Well, it's just misleading. Um, 
it is. Let's see. Where's that? Did it did it sound too culty when you read it? <laughs> um, you know it. The, the, it sort of tries to say, okay, there was a problem, but here, see, we took care of it. These two guys resigned. All done. Done and done. You know, when the real situation was really messy. Oh, yeah. Well, can't argue with you there. I think a whole podcast could be done on this guy's excommunication. I was reading this um, account that some guy had written about how he refused to be to come in and meet with the leaders of the church. And eventually when he did come in, he was cursing, um, cursing George A. Smith with bad health. And uh, <laughs> apparently um, David O. McKay was brand new at the time that all mm-hmm. of this was going on. And he was astounded at what was happening. And there's kind of this weird interplay between like the new sort of church leadership and the old sort of church leadership where, you know, the old guys were lying for the Lord and everything's done in secret and we're not telling what's actually going on. And David O. McKay's from the new generation thinking that everything is out in the open and simple and easy. And like, it was this really interesting dynamic that was being played out. And that, that really marks the turn of the church. You know, the Mm -hmm. church under McKay was very different, but polygamy was really, um, uh, litmus test of faithfulness. And the families were very interbred. The families were very established. And, you know, you had. Wait, pr- wait, wait. Interbred. <laughs> Absolutely. By every you're, sense you're not- of the word. Okay. The, if, you, if you read, th- if you read through the genealogies, you know, like they would be married oftentimes to like daughters of fellow members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And the families, they were dynastic in these relationships. Um, and they were, these families, you, you know, you, you look at like when we've gone through McConkie, you know, they're how they're all, they're, they're all related to all these families and they tie in back and forth. And they're, right, they're right, right, right. But, over they, here. but they had standards. They weren't marrying their own daughters, right? No. no. But okay. I think he meant it See? more the royal way. Like the royals yeah. did it and, you know. But but my point is, is that was a, there was a time when you couldn't get into high leadership positions unless you'd taken a, a, a wife. And it was that, that you had shown that you were committed. It was more than, and, and then suddenly around about the Smoot hearings after the statehood was granted, you had to not be a polygamist. And it turned the whole thing on its head. Um, and then the people who are like still around from the polygamy families all of Bruce R. McConkie became these sort of right-wingers, um, you know, the, the Smiths and stuff. And, but then the church pushed liberally because they, they had to go get new blood in. Um, and this is where you get like the Lees and the, and the, and, uh, David O. McKay and some of those guys. Now, when I use the word liberal with these guys, I'm, I'm liberally using the definition, but it, it did, it did push the church in whole new directions. In comparison. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this, this was a, uh, Matthias Cowley, John W. Taylor, the Smoot hearings, the post-manifesto polygamy. This was like the crux of the church, the turn of the old church into the new church, and it's very important. And you have other things going on, like the oath of vengeance and the revamping of the temple, and just this, all this strange stuff. And then this is, of course, when Talmadge was commissioned to revamp the doctrine, and you have Jesus the Christ and Articles of Faith and some of those books being being which which we just accept naturally as the de facto doctrine of the church but the people who were in that transitional period would have looked at Talmadge's book and said eh, maybe maybe not well you yeah. know sorry go ahead no i was just agreeing with john for a change go ahead 
I was just going to say, I just finished reading Who Wrote the Bible, and it talks about how they've got these um, scribes who are cutting up, you know, and putting together these different um, accounts to make them one cohesive thing. And I'm trying to understand, like, how how do they just all of a sudden go to people and say, okay, now this is the real truth. What you were, you know, practicing before, that's no longer the case. But I think just looking at Mormon history from the time Brigham Young came to, you know, Salt Lake City to now, it's, I mean, it's not that many generations that we are, we understand a completely different religion and we believe completely different things about church history. So it doesn't take that long of a turnover to completely rewrite everything in the past and have people just believe and, and go forward as if that was what was really going on. Well, uh, that, that, that articulates a lot of what I was talking about earlier in identifying the psychology of religion. I mean, I, we, we talked about it a little bit, but you're, you're, you're begging that question, Heather. Why are they doing this? Because the world is modernizing, and if they don't keep up, they're going to be left behind and become like, you know, the shakers or, you know, the, these other religions that just fall by the wayside and die. But, but think of how much they've invested in it. I mean, polygamy was a big, big deal. And when they broke from it, well, you can't even say they broke from it. And we've been arguing this forever. It was more of a transitional thing that took 10, 20, 30, 50 years. There were still high authorities that were practicing it and even helping others hide it in secret. And it, it wasn't exactly something they could just break from because there was too much invested at that point. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, Heber, Heber Grant, what, he died in 48, I think. He was a polygamist. Now, most yeah. of the time he wasn't because he, he, he'd married two wives when they were young. One passed away. So most of his presidency, he was only married to one woman, but that's, that's, you only have to go back that far. And there are still guys in that, well, when did, um, you, you know, the, the, the Hinckley was still around when, I mean, they, they they connect, they bridge, you know, so it, we're not that far removed from the polygamist. Right. Yeah, when was Hinckley born? In like 19... 14. Uh, uh, yeah, like 1912, 1914, something yeah. like that. Because um, I'm not sure when um, Monson came to the quorum. I, I, I have in my mind as the early 60s, like 63 or something like that. Um, now... Um, but yeah, he was born into a completely different church and led a church that was entirely different than the one he was born into. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating study Definitely. and one which we, you know we try to dip our toe into this like Heather's saying how they managed the change and how it changed over time. I mean look at something as recent it was spring of 1990 when they changed the temple and I would guess that I don't know what percentage but a huge percentage of Mormons today never saw the death penalties and never knew that the temple the part of the temple ceremony was in a dammit, right? And they would deny it if you told them. You said, hey, you know, we used to give part of the temple ceremony in the Adamic language. They'd be like, come on, anti-Mormon lies. And that was only like 21 years ago. Right. My parents were uh, went through the temple in 1978. Uh-huh. And I, I've no, knowing what I know now, I have no idea how they just accepted that a church is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Completely changed in 1990. Well, look at, look well, at in 2005, they changed the, the Washington anointing. That is an ordinance. Right, it's not just like something they're talking about. They actually changed an ordinance. How many churches did the early brethren light up for changing ordinances? How many missionaries have thrown other religions, under you know, the under the bus for saying, "Hey, look, they've changed baptism." Two thousand five, six years ago, they changed an ordinance, and it just went out with a whimper. 
right? It would be as if we went from full, full immersion baptism to dribbling on the forehead. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Because the change of that ordinance, though, John, was actually a relief. I think for the uh, church membership. On but if whole. it's true, what does it matter if it's hard? I'm sure that in the Middle Ages, it was a, or the, the early, early Middle Ages, it was a huge relief not to dunk people in a cold river anymore and to sprinkle water on them. You know, I'm sure the <laughs> deaths by pneumonia dropped considerably. So, well, it, it's a slap in the face to those that, that have survived through the harder times and the harder ordinances and, and stuff like that. I mean, like the uh, the garments that used to be one piecers and go down to your wrists and, and ankles. Made out of wool. I mean, they they would they would just shake their head in shame seeing how they how the garments are nowadays because they, they sacrifice so much for that. But but I mean, that's a study and change. How you 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 basically, uh, you know, my prediction is the church will continue to make major changes about every twenty years, about every generation, because then there's only so many changes you'll see in a lifetime, and. I don't accuse them necessarily of having a schedule, but yeah, they'll look and see what, you know, when they made the changes in 1990, it was widely reported that there had been a survey of members before that, that they had, yeah, they had exactly. gone through and looked and said, yep. there's parts that people find creepy in the temple, and they responded, and that's what's going to continue to happen. You know, I didn't know about that until the PBS special, The Mormons. I had no idea there was death penalties. I had no idea. And I I, I'm just I'm just admitting the ignorance. Well, that's the perfect myself. example of the way that the church has been able to control uh, how they say it now, control the narrative. Yeah. When, when did they change that? Eight, late eighties. Um, it was I think April of nineteen ninety. Ninety. Because it was it, I, I didn't see it. Yeah, you and yeah, I, I, Mike, we came right after, right after. Yeah. Um, but it, it's to be had out there, and and the stuff they removed is is um really heavy Masonic stuff. So you can go look at Masonic ceremonies and find out what they move, removed. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't have any problem talking about it because it's no longer under prohibition, right? Because it's not in the temple. So, well, I, but, I, but I think to the whole point of the conversation is, is they'll change. They'll continually change, whether it be ordinance, whether it be, I mean, whatever else program, you know, three out from, from the, the divided church to the three hour block. The church will continually change. I, it will, and, and it'll continue to insist that it's the only church that has the right ordinances. Well, um, and to, it'll say to the others end of keeping them. membership, though. I just think the doctrine of apostasy, and we're getting off track, is completely <laughs> untenable um, with the history of the church. There's, there's yes. no path you can make the doctrine of apostasy make sense at all. None. Period. Hmm. All right, Definitely thanks for tuning in. Thanks for... <laughs> All right. <laughs> the top 10. So, um, in reverse order, number 10, Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt. Number 9, Luke and Lyman Johnson. Number 8, John E. Page. Number 7, William Smith. Number 6, um, Amasa, well, I keep saying it wrong, Lyman, Lyman, Wright, not Lyman White at number 5, Thomas B. Marsh at number 4, William McClellan at number 3, Richard R. Lyman at number 2, and number 1, John W. Taylor. I think the lesson is if you have Lyman anywhere in your name, you're destined for bad things. And great things. You'll be known in history. So there you have the top ten. And this wasn't all of them, by the way. There were there were there were others who were um excommunicated and thrown out, but all right. Any any parting thoughts from our our panel? I know very little about church history and I am so excited to learn. Well, stick around, sister. <laughs> Tom? You, I'll give you the last word for the church. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> Heather would like to see you come back. Mike, Mike, don't give up on us. I know John's already given up. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hey, don't don't dust your don't dust the shoe dust off your shoes or whatever. He's a friend. Urge Was him to dusting? come back too. Is that dusting, oh, he's Tom? he's a he's a friend. But if if Mike Tannehill can't get to John, I don't think anybody. Can. <laughs> like I am a friend of truth. I my religion is truth. So. The, by that I am, um, and if I am, if they may show me that I believe something that's false, I will immediately switch my belief. I have no vestiture in anything being other than what it is. So, so uh, if I can nail down apostasy, then you're good. <laughs> You'll see him in church the next Sunday. That sounded that sounded like you were issuing a challenge a little bit, John. I think you should edit that out. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're gonna have people start to challenge you all kinds of stuff. You give me a definition of of apostasy. I just Here, know it can't here, be done. I here's the challenge John, to so. everybody out there. You give me a definition of apostasy, and at the same time show that the church does not fulfill that requirement of being an apostasy, and then you win. <laughs> Because I, I don't I don't think you can one define it and two show that the church is not in that state. I think you're opening up a whole new avenue of, of podcast series for Mormon yeah, expression. I'm really? I'm I'm ready and open for public debate. Bring it on, all you BYU guys. At least the ones that aren't in <laughs> that aren't in the pokey um in Israel right now. Yeah, we, and John doesn't want to hear anybody from Snow College. <laughs> <laughs> all right. He'll consider BYU Idaho. Well, as always, <laughs> as always, the discussion continues, and I think when I get around to it, I'm going to put a page up. Where we're going to collect all of our top tens, so you can you can see them. But I'll have to wait till we get a couple more under our belt. As always, discussion continues on the website. Check us out there. Remember all of our fun stuff going on. Uh, you, you can keep keep up with the website on our Facebook group. Um, that's a great place to see what's going on. We do have a mailing list that we do send out for occasionally, and just check the website. There's lots of cool stuff going on. So. Good night, everybody. Good night. 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 Did you say the uh, discussion will continue at warmexpression.com? I think I kind of said it twice, yeah. No.